Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Good day, good people. My name is Brad King, and you are listening to the Downtown Riders Jam podcast, which is part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. Max the Dog and I are coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker, although if I'm honest, we just had uh, our fifth of six chemo treatments, and I think it's starting to get a little hard on him. Uh, so I'm not sure he'll be making appearance today, but we'll do, we'll do everything we can to make sure that after the next treatment, which is his last, that he is back and bothering me during these shows. Uh, I am really excited about today's program. Andy Abramowitz is on the program. Uh, his book, Darling at the Campsite is out now. He's the author of a couple books, Thank You, Good Night, and A Beginner's Guide to Freefall, um, along with his current book. The work has been hailed as soul-searching, fun, and unfailing and heartfelt by the Washington Post, funny and compassionate by Kirkus, which is a huge deal. He's a native of Baltimore, which we're going to talk about a lot. Uh, he lives with his wife, two daughters, and their dog Rufus in Philadelphia, where he enjoys classic rock, pitcher's duels, birthday cake, the sound of a Fender Rhodes piano in the month of October. He is also a lawyer. Basically, everything that you just heard uh, is what we're going to talk about today. Um, this is one of those, if you listen to the program, this is one of those uh, wide-ranging, free-form discussions. Uh, before we get to that, a little bit of business. The Jam comes out every Wednesday, so a couple things. ask you to do this every week. I'm going to keep asking you to do it. Tell your friends about us and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. That is how we get found. That is how uh, we can spread the word about this, and that's how we grow the audience. You can also pop on over to Facebook and leave us a review on our page or head to theridersjam.com and leave us a testimonial through the contact page. While you're at the site, as you know, a couple things you can do. We have our video podcast series, which comes out uh, Monday and Friday-ish. We have a bunch in the can. I sort of put them up when I want to put them up. If you want to buy any of the books of people who have been on the program, head to the bookshop link and click on that. Looking for a book to read? Click on our book review section. Or if you don't want to go to the website, all you got to do is sign up for our monthly newsletter, and all of that stuff will show up in your inbox. It's amazing. Last thing you can do is support the entire Solid Listen Network by clicking on that Patreon button for just a couple bucks a month. Get commercial-free episodes, special happy hours, and bonus content from everybody on the network. Now, today, uh, Andy and I are very similar in our backgrounds. And I've had a few of these folks on the show. Um, and if you are not Gen X, this will seem a little weird. If you are, this will seem very much at, uh, likely like an experience that you either knew about or people that you knew um, lived. So if you were trying to be a writer, you know, back in the late 80s, early 90s, there's a good chance that you were working at a weekly newspaper or writing for a weekly newspaper, or if you weren't doing that, like you had a zine um, or you were writing for a zine. And there was, it was this weird time where like record stores and coffee shops and zine culture and the alt weekly culture kind of existed in one space. 
And if you did one, you were exposed to these other things. And it was just all tied together. It was just, that was my experience of that. Um, that you could not do one without the other. I mean, I'm sure you could. That is just not my experience with it. And so as I was talking to Andy, and he was talking about like his dream of being a musician and was sort of talking about that journey that he went on, I just kept thinking like, yeah, no, I totally get this, right? Like, Because I spent a lot of times in basements around Ohio. Like I was not only writing for a Cincinnati City Beat, um, which I don't know if it exists anymore after the pandemic, but also this, this little publication called Music of Ohio, Moo, for those in the know. And, you know, I spent time with Kelly Deal at her house in Dayton after she got out of rehab, and I wrote some stuff about uh, Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails, um, along with a bunch of bands that you've never heard of, right? Like Plow on Boy from Cincinnati is one of the... They were band of the year, I think, in 1994, 95, and I, I wrote their story. And, like, that was just sort of what you did. Even though I was a music and culture writer, like, I wrote very little about music, but I wrote a whole bunch about... Um, the sort of confluence of pop culture in American society as told through a young writer in Cincinnati. So all that is to say, like, when I talked to Andy, like, we immediately fell into this routine. Like, Larry Smith and I did it. Like, it's, just, it's happened a few times on the program. Now, what you're not going to hear is 30 minutes of us taking a deep dive into baseball. You're welcome. Um, I edited all that out. But rest assured, it was also sort of part of that um, that time, you know, like that uh, time and place. For me, obviously, if you listen to the program, you know baseball was a part of that. It was a part of it in, in Andy's life as well. So I thought I would spare you for, from another Dan Patrick episode of the Writer's Gym. But the whole conversation, I just, it is freewheeling and all over the place in a way that these programs are always that way. But this is a little extra just because there's so much. The, the neurons were firing and all of the connections that we were making because we sort of came of age in the same stew. And even though he was in Baltimore and I was outside of Cincinnati, like, you know, they're not that far away from each other. And cities where art was happening at that time particularly cities that were struggling and were sort of coming out of the, like, uh, post-industrial Wall Street era and headed into what was going to be this, you know, digital new media economy. Cities like that were struggling. And so there was this sort of weird uprising of art that happened. So we started talking very quickly. It became clear what was happening. Um, and it was a fantastic discussion that I that I hope that you will enjoy. And I appreciate you guys all stopping by the bunker to spend some time with Max and I to indulge me as I have some of these strange and odd conversations. I hope that your day is going well. I hope that you are taking care of yourself and each other. I hope you are giving grace to the people around us and each other and you as we all transition back into the real world. And I hope that you can sit back for the next hour and enjoy my conversation with Andy Abramowitz. So I was just down in Alabama with my girlfriend and we went to see the, uh, I, I keep calling it Birmingham because my friends are from England and that's how you pronounce it there. Birmingham. The Burmese. And yeah. we went to see the Birmingham Barons, which is where Michael Jordan played. So like, 
I remember. I, I didn't know that's where he played. I remember him going down. So, like, you walk into the stadium, and there's just, like, I swear to God, there's, like, a three-story picture of Michael Jordan. Like, this place, I think, had Willie Mays there. Like, they had real baseball players come through, and right. I'm like, why the fuck is there a three-story Michael Jordan here? Like, exactly. So, it's, so they're, they're a White Sox farm team? They are. And, um, and, I, and that was, I want to say, 94, 95. Something like that. for them, yeah. right? Because yeah. I... It's funny. My brother used to live in Memphis and I went down to visit him and we went to see a Memphis chicks game. And I think they were playing Birmingham. Um, Either they were playing, either we saw the Birmingham game, the Michael Jordan game, or they were there like the night before. We were like, Michael Jordan's playing center field in, you know, (laughs) like minor league baseball. What the? Yeah. (laughs) And you're like, we're there. We're we're getting tickets to this game. hundred percent. We're going to see them. Yeah. Right. You see him drop a fly ball. You know, it's, um, you know, I played ball and everybody on the show has heard me say it a million times, like my high school baseball coach put a hundred guys in a major league. So like I basically from the time I was like eight or nine, seven, eight, nine, I was around professional baseball players. So when I go to double A games, I can usually say like, that's the guy, that's the guy. None right. of these other guys are. Wow. Wow. Just because you get used to seeing the bodies, you see him move like you, like you, like there's a picture the other night that, you know, he, they didn't have a gun, but if you can't see the ball, it's above 95 miles an hour. If you can see the ball, it's below 95. And like this guy came in and like all of a sudden was just throwing shit that nobody could see. I'm like, well, that's why we're here. (laughs) Like like none of the other guys where they were all like my height. I'm like, yeah, they're not. So I can't imagine walking into the park and being like, well, fuck, he's six foot six. That looks like the guy. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. (laughs) And here's the thing. Can you, where'd you go to high school? Uh, it's a little place called Loveland, but Dave coaches a team called the Midland Braves, which is in the Connie Mack league. So like, okay. you know, Griffey Jr. Played there. David Bell played there. Like they're just like every, like if you just go back from like the seventies to now, you can go to the team. They have a list of like everybody that's ever gone there. Holy shit. Yeah. So, you know, it was, I mean, our high school baseball assistant coaches were like former Cardinals players. Like it was from the time you were a kid, like you were just around that kind of excellence and i've told That's people fantastic. like it really was like but it's weird like i'm no fun to see a game with now because people are like what's happening i'm like shut the fuck up like here's what's happening like right. how can you not tell what's happening on this field because that one right. guy moved there like this is what's happening exactly right like you're you're not there for the you're not there for the cracker jacks no yeah. i'm there because i really love the game I, I i knew how good i was like i was like single a good so that the real prospect could play like that was how good I would have been had I followed it through. But I also have seen great. I mean, I played against Ken Griffey jr. When I was 13, maybe I think I was 11. I think he was 13. Um, because we played in a league that was too, too up. He was the best player on the field at 13. Like you knew who he was at 13. It was just like, well, I can't, I can't do that. It doesn't right. matter what I do. Like, there's just, you know, Mark Lewis, who was a very, very average journeyman in the major leagues, could throw the ball like 98 miles an hour from the hole in shortstop with like catch it, plant, throw 98 miles an hour. I'm like, it doesn't matter what I do. Well, I can't right. do that. <laughs> Everybody, every league needs that perspective because, you know, like the scrubs, the guys who ride the pine in the majors. Yeah. Are the best guys ever. <laughs> Those guys are on on their high school wall for baseball, football. Yeah. <laughs> they own all the records yeah. for every sport, and they are like schmoes in the pros. Yeah, like 
nobody in the pros, but they're legends in their hometown. Yeah. We got one more and then we'll, and then we'll actually get started talking. I love getting baseball people on the show because about half the show is this. I was going to um, say like, are we recording? Yeah. Oh yeah. hundred percent. We are. Um, Good. I always call the, I always call this, uh, whenever I get people like you on, I'm like, Oh, this is the Dan Patrick version of the downtown. Right? <laughs> and it, you know, it's one of the reasons that I love getting baseball people on the show to talk about this stuff, just because like, if you really know the game, like it's not that different from literature, right? Like it's not that different from writing because like, you know, you there, you could, you just see like, I, I don't know where you feel like your talent is, but like when you're around stuff, like you see greatness and you're like, fuck, like I'm not jealous of greatness in those areas. Cause I'm like, I am in awe of that because I know what it takes. Exactly. And it's both exactly. timing and, you know, talent. Right. It's all the stuff. Like it just, so to see the world come together in that moment, you're like, fuck, that's amazing. Right. Right. And, the, but the difference is that in professional sports, there's no room for like the me. Yeah. In the world of publishing, yeah. there's there's room for the me yeah. because like I don't have to be you know I, I don't have to be Jumpa Lahiri I don't have to be yeah. Dave Biggers yeah. I don't have to be the people that you know that have talent where you read and you're like holy shit who writes like that yeah um, you know there's there's a little there's there's kind of space for everybody yeah there's a point where you have to like you have to decide okay I, I'm not going to be that. Yeah. Like that's not going to be, I'm, and, and it's like, I'm, I, I, I got to keep reading that because I got to absorb it and I got to love it and it's art and I got to appreciate it, but I can't try to be that because, no. because I ain't going to be that. So, no. it's, uh, you know, you almost got to like know your limitations. Yeah. And that, you know, a lot of the show that we talk about normally this happens like near the end of the show, but like, it's, I mean, finding your voice and who you are is the whole goal, right? Like it doesn't, like, right. I, I would have traded anything to have been a 20 year utility player right. like that's i mean i knew from an early age like i ain't batting forth like nobody's coming to my games to be like what's this 400 hitter who's a little shit doing <laughs> you know what i mean but like there's a place for that around there and like oh my god yeah um, you know it's like eight? yeah yeah i mean there's all like you always need and that, these days with 26 27 people on the roster but like even as a writer like it's just like oh like small and independent presses like where like where do i fit in for the things that i want to say right. um and finding right. that is such a freeing experience like when you do find that place you're like oh shit this is my home like this That's area right. is where i where i excel in a way that other people can't exactly Exactly. And committing to that and knowing that, I mean, for me, that take, that took time. I think it probably does for a lot of writers because everybody, you know, everybody wants to write like the masters Yeah, uh, and not everybody can. That's why, yeah. the masters. but yeah, but for knowing, like knowing both, there's a home for me somewhere. If I want to put you know, like independent publishing, there's a, there's a way to get this out, yeah. especially in, you know, especially today, but there's also like knowing where the sweet spot is for me to be really satisfied with my work. One of my favorite, because uh, I liked Stephen King growing up, yeah, and then too. when I read On Writing, I feel like On Writing is that book that like every writer has to read because he has this moment in the book where he's like, I realized that what I wasn't doing was like high art and literature, but I'm really good at this thing that I do. And I was like, that's maybe the most fucking important sentence I've ever read from a writer. Absolutely. Right. You just know what you know what you're good at. And um, and it's hard to be good at anything. It's hard to be good at anything. Yeah. Right. It's hard to be good at, and also, like, and I didn't read that book, but um, but also Stephen King, 
he's good at a lot. Like he's not just Christine. He's not just, you know, like Cujo and Christine and The Shining. He's also um, the Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. Stand by me. Right. Like the dude's got range. Yeah. (laughs) So, okay. So we've gone completely off the rails, which is my favorite kind of interview. So you're out in Philly. Where are you from? I'm from Baltimore. Ooh. So born and raised in Baltimore. And we're about the same age. I mean, I'm 49. You're a little bit younger than me. No, no. I only look, you're only saying that because I look so much older. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just turned 50 a couple months ago. Oh, we're the same age then. We're the same age. So you grew up like in that sort of hard Baltimore time. Right, right. I grew like up. Like the 70s and 80s in that time were, that was. Like for the city? Yeah. Yeah. So, so in 1980, they opened up Harbor Place. I think I got my dates right. 80. So I was like nine. And, um, and people started, go, that started to be a thing. Like we're going to go downtown. And before that, it was just Little Italy. Yeah. That's where you went downtown, you went to Little Italy. But, um, which was great and still is. Um, but yeah, and then they opened up Harbor Place and people started coming in and, um, were you guys in the city or were you in a suburb? No, I was out in the suburbs. I was out in uh, a town called Owens Mills. How far away is that from the downtown? Uh, 20 minutes. But as a kid, that's might as well be on the other side of the moon. <laughs> right. Right. Except my folks really like going downtown. So yeah. we did town a lot. And, um, and then of course in, you know, in the early 92, they put the stadium there. Yeah. So, People, you know, and I think Baltimore really committed to, you know, you say, you say Baltimore to anybody. It's like, yeah, I love the wire. Great show, you know, or homicide life on the street. Great show. Or, um, you know, the corner or something yeah. like that. They never want to talk about Barry Levinson movies, but <laughs> they want well, to say David Simon is sort of like made it like, I mean, as a reporter, he was like, look, like, you know, sort of white America knew one part of Baltimore. And then there was this right. whole other part of Baltimore. A hundred percent, hundred percent. And he, and he, he did it and does it so well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, you know, yeah. Baltimore has definitely, um, had its, uh, had its ups and downs. Yeah. And, and I mean, the whole thing, I mean, the whole seventies and eighties was rough. I mean, it was the, like, that was, a, that was a rough time in America, like with the gas yeah. crisis and sort of New York wasn't great either. Yeah. You know, I mean, Pittsburgh, yeah. like a lot of the places were struggling economically in those times. So, were you an only child or do you have brothers and sisters? No, I got an older brother and a younger sister. And, and then what, and what did your parents do? So my dad, uh, he, the whole career as a doctor, he just, just hung it up a couple of years ago. Um, and my mom was a social worker by trade, but was sort of mostly around. She did stuff, but she basically just kind of, um, kept us alive and, and raised us and, served on boards and did that, did that whole thing. But she like that was, you know, there was a certain kind of like mom at that time, like my mom <laughs> didn't want to work, but she had to work. So she sort of like bounced in and out of the workforce is like, <laughs> you don't need money. I'm going to like, she wanted to stay home and be it. That was what she wanted to be. And then when it was like, well, we don't have any money. It's like, well, good luck. You know, is that right. Gen X thing? Like, here's a key. Like, you know, there's exactly. some Lunchables in the fridge. Like, don't right. die. <laughs> Sorry, but you're a latchkey kid until yeah. things change. Yeah. And they may yeah. or may not change. It's unclear what's and about to happen. <laughs> right. We'll let you know on a week by week basis. <laughs> <laughs> I remember we, my parents don't remember this, but I remember very distinctly a conversation they had on the, like we lived in the country, like there were 13 houses in my neighborhood. And like, they were concerned that they were going to lose their house. And they were like, wow. I don't think that's going to happen. I'm like, can I just tell you as a child, I remember listening to you crying at the table as you're like, 
are we going to be able to keep the house? I'm like, I don't know how serious it was, but like you were crying. <laughs> that's, that's the kind of thing where the kid has greater credibility than the parent yeah. because that made an impression, right? Yeah. Like if a kid, you remember that because you went upstairs to bed and thought about it all night long. So I can tell you right now, your parents' denials of that conversation yeah. are not, are, are completely false. I told them that year I didn't need a Christmas. Wow. That's how I'm like, that shit's real. What nine-year-old is like, no presents for this guy. Yeah. <laughs> I would rather, if if given a choice, I'll take the house as opposed to a Christmas present. Yeah. Right? Socks. Yeah. And I'll, like, let's hang on to the house. Yeah. So uh, what, what, what were your brother and sister like? Um, they, they're awesome. They're a lot of fun. Uh, we were, we were, it was, a, it was a, a close family. We were, um, we were still are really close, even though we don't, none of us live in the same town. Um, but, uh, my brother went on to be a psychologist, as I, as I mentioned yeah. before, we had a, we got a psychologist in the family. Um, and, and he's down in North Carolina. My sister is in Baltimore. My, my parents are still in Baltimore. Actually, my wife, um, went to, um, our, uh, sort of the high school right across the tracks. I always say she was on the wrong side of the yeah. tracks. I grew up on the wrong side of the tracks too. Yeah, I so did it. she. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, although she'd never admit it. Um, we didn't know each other in high school and we only met later, but um, but yeah, our whole families are pretty much uh, still in, in Baltimore, except yeah. my brother was down in, in Chapel Hill. But yeah, it was, yeah. What were you like? What were you like as a kid? Me? Yeah. I don't know. I was, I was awesome. <laughs> I knew, I knew, I almost, I'm like, oh, like you remind me of me. I'm like, I know what this fucking answer is going to be. That's amazing. I was perfect. Yeah. No, um, I don't know. I, th I think I was just sort of the, what I felt like was the ordinary suburban kid. I had my, I had my basket of insecurities. Um, I had a good group of friends. I can't complain about that. So, so I hid well. Um, <laughs> I played was it a, a big school or a small school. I think I graduated. It was it was pretty. I mean, back then it seemed enormous, but I, I think our graduating class was like uh, a little over two hundred. So yeah. we had eight hundred folks in the eight hundred kids in, in the school. Yeah, that's a little bit. I mean, I grew up in a town of like five or six thousand people. I think I had one hundred and sixty. Like, so really? you know, like, yeah. I think oh. they all went to high school. I think. <laughs> because <laughs> you moved there if you had kids like it's this little Appalachian town like that was sort of like it was generational so like like people lived there forever and they would just get married and have kids and like those kids would go to the school and so wait, what's the name of the town again you said uh, it's called Loveland it is now if you went there now it's like a it's a it's a rich person in the haven it's every time I take people back they're like fuck you you were poor I'm like look let me take you to where we lived <laughs> like, right, like yeah, you can wear your that was a field. <laughs> right, right. You can wear your cowboy hat all you want, man, but yeah. I wear yeah. your No, yeah. um, it's funny. Like, we, uh, the, it, my, my parents are actually um, moving out of the house that we moved into like 43 years ago. So they basically, oh, shit. yeah, moved into when I was seven. Wow. Um, wow. So they, they're finally moving out. And it's funny, like, we've been talking about how when we moved onto that street, it was nothing. It was like a dirt road. It was an unpaved there. Our street yeah. was a street. There were like four houses on the block. And, um, and yeah, we feel like we, we feel like we watched Owens Mills develop, but, um, 
it's an yeah. odd it's an odd feeling isn't it to like see that go back to a place that now looks so i'm assuming it looks radically different than radically yeah the, the street looks the same but uh, but everything is different and it's um you know where there used to be cornfields there are houses yeah. and, and new houses either but like houses that have been there for 30 years and yeah. it's um yeah you definitely take stock when you start thinking about um but it's like how does how has how a lifetime passed like how, you know i still feel like a kid so how is a lifetime really yeah. like living there for 43 years like that sounds like an awfully long time how, how's that possible when yeah. i'm really just a couple years out of college <laughs> So what do you like when you get to high school? Like what, like, so you're like, you got your family, you're li living out there. It's good life. Like who are you in school? Um, much of the same. Kind awesome. of, yeah, I was awesome. I was, um, yeah, no, <laughs> same kid. You know, I was kind of, I was like, I consider myself a mid pack high school. <laughs> I'm not talking like I did fine grade wise, yeah. but like I fit in fine. Um, I, I was, I was neither stuffing anybody in lockers nor getting stuffed in lockers <laughs> by, again, I had some, I had some really good friends that, um, you know, are, are, I still are my good friends. Um, I did fine, you know, again, carried around that, that, uh, basket of insecurities, but I, I'm one of those too, by the way. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> I think the, the mailman has showed up and he's like, uh, dude, we gotta, we gotta do something about this. Right. It's like Andy's talking about his childhood. We got to yeah. drown. So were you like an athlete? So I like, this is one of the things I'm like, I always do this as if there's some kind of breakdown. We're like, were you an athlete? Were you like a theater kid? Were you in the choir? Like, were you one of the like shop kids? Like who were, or did you, was it small enough that you're like, I, oh, we kind of did everything. Well, so I, I was not a shop kid. Nobody would call me a shop kid. Yeah. I mean, either. I played sports. I loved baseball. I, so I played baseball, wrestled for a couple of years. Um, oh, that's, that's a tough sport. Yeah, I wrestling is real. Yeah, it's it's a lot harder than I expected, and <laughs> especially like the <laughs> the training. That's like what the, I mean. Like that's wrestling that's, practice just sucked. It's, it's like yeah, I got some friends that were like come along. <laughs> We'd be I got like, eighth period, man. I don't want to go to practice. I got friends that like made it to state, and like they were. I mean, to this day, they're still like some of the toughest fucking. I mean, they're nice, but I'm like. The shit, like you're running around in high school in hefty bags to lose like three pounds exactly. a day of, and I'm like, you're 17, right? <laughs> I would see that, right? I would see that in the locker room, and you know, and then like running around with the hefty bags, dropping those two pounds of water weight, and then chowing down on a Subway turkey sub. And I would see that, and I think to myself, yeah, this this probably isn't this probably isn't me. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I, so I was. I wouldn't, I, I, I love baseball. So I, I love playing on the, on the baseball team, but I also did, I was into, I, I considered myself the next Phil Collins when I was in high school. So I was kind of, um, I played piano, not well, but did you play the drums. I did not play the drums, but, but I mean, we see the issue with that comparison, right? <laughs> no, no, no. But cause back then <laughs> Phil had his, you know, cheesy electric keyboard Sure. and sure. He was a great drummer. Great drummer. <laughs> But he was also, you know, one yeah, yeah. all he had is two chords. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of delay on the vocals. And so, um, and and really to be Phil Collins, all you need to do is emote. When <laughs> 80s Phil Collins, you just need to you just need to to bring all that pain that you really, in my case, weren't suffering. Did not have into the vocals and and you had it. So I 
I, I sort of, at that point, I was uh, convincing myself that I was, um, that I was Phil Collins. That was before I got to college and convinced myself that I was Tom Petty, but yeah. So was, this was like, you were Phil Collins, because it was Peter Gabriel, right? Well, Peter Gabriel left, and then he stopped being the drummer and moved the right. keyboard, right? He was the, he was the front man. Yeah, so it was, it was post, you were post Peter Gabriel, Phil Collins. Right, it's when Genesis got a lot less cool, but Phil Collins got more cool. Yeah, he really did. It was, yeah, it was really one of the, so were you writing and stuff back then? Or were you really just like that sort of suburban kid that's like, I'm just loving high school and doing my thing. And like, clearly college is coming, but like, I'm just like, this is good. Like, this is good. Life's good. I wasn't writing, I wasn't writing books back then. I wasn't writing fiction. Um, That didn't come till later. I really, at that point, I I really wanted to be a musician and I really writing songs. And I was, um, and I was really thinking that that would happen. And um, and it didn't. Since you're on this show, we know how and that story ended. <laughs> right, right. Are you going to cut that part out because it's a spoiler alert? But, I bet. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. By the way, the fact that you don't know who this guy is as a musician, <laughs> and I'm going to intro you. Okay, so before we get to high school, we're going to take a or before we get to college, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to yeah. come back, and we're going to get out of here, out of high school, and we're going to find out what you were like in college. Awesome. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing 
to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so we're back. So you were Phil Collins in high school, trying to be, um, and you're getting ready to graduate. And I'm assuming, based on what you told me about your parents, that like college was the expectation. Like you're going to college. I was going to college. And what did you want to go for? Or did you just want to go to college? I just wanted to go to college. I didn't have, you know, it's funny now, like people, um, there's an expectation that you know what you're going to do. I know, it's crazy, right? Yeah, some of my friends, and and it wasn't until I got to college that I realized, and some of my friends, some of my college friends, they really, the, the lesson that they taught me is that you don't need to know what you're going to do until much later, yeah, <laughs> like much later. There were a lot of people that I graduated with who are doing great now, but, you know, had no plans when we graduated college, had yeah. absolutely no plans, weren't thinking about anything, and, um, you know, and put it all together by the time they were, you know, 30, you know, 28, 29, 30, and, um, and it didn't hurt them none. Like, yeah. it's fine. And um, so... Yeah, but I, I didn't head off to college thinking um, this is what I'm going to do. I got a, I got a plan. I'm going to yeah. stick to it. That was not me. I was just like, all right, I'll go to college and I'll see how that goes. And where would you go? Which one? Uh, Franklin and Marshall College in uh, in Lancaster. It, oh, uh, home of the Mennonites. Exactly. My my, I know this because my family uh, owned this first gunsmithing shop in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is home of the Kentucky Long Rifle, which is the rifle used in the Revolutionary War. Wow, I didn't know that. You did not expect that to show up in today's conversation. That, that came out of nowhere. Yeah, it really did. If you listen, if like people who listen to the show are like, "Oh, she is going to talk about Appalachia and his family again." Um, right, here comes the gun. Here comes the gun. Yeah, gunman. here comes is the hillbillies. Is it still there? You can go visit the shop. Uh, my family left uh, around seventeen oh three, seventeen oh four, and went down to uh, North Carolina and ended up settling in parts of Kentucky. Um, so, but like that, what you said about the 30, like, I feel like Gen X is the first generation that was like, we, we were the sort of first generation that was like, we're going to have multiple careers. Although we didn't know that at the time that you sort of like, and I mean, obviously this is privileged stuff. Like, because if you were poor working class, like you started working and stuff, but like to a certain group of people, it was like, you sort of came out of college and you had like that sort of European post-college experience of like, what am, what am I going to do? Like that gen, like that post-college time was just, it's hard to explain to people that didn't go through it. Like you could just kind of be artistic and arty and fuck around and figure right. out what you were doing. Yeah. And, um, and there was this, this divide between our generation and the one before us, because we were the generation that, that I, I maybe were the, I don't know. I feel like the generation before us and all of them before them, um, you know, they went to work and unless something happened, they stayed at that job for and 50 years, for 50 years. And this is what they were going to do yeah. uh, until I retire, keel over. And this is, this, this is my life now. And, um, and you know, it's great work for them. They, they, all, you know, they, they had happy people, unhappy people, but I, I think it worked for them, worked for all those generations. But I, I do think that our generation is different. And came along and said, I'm going to do this, but then, yeah, and then I'm going to jump to another job if I don't like this. Or well, it was the time of corporate, corporate raiding and, like, places were getting shut down and torn apart and sold off and Wall Street was going crazy. And, like, 
you know, I just think about all the art and stuff that was coming out, like movies, TV shows, music, books. It was all about like, this is bullshit. Like right. <laughs> everything that I've seen my parents go through is bullshit. And I don't know right. what I'm going to do, but I'm not going to fucking do that. I'm not going to do that. Right. Right. And I even though I'm sure lots of us ended up doing exactly some version yeah, of that. We said, I'm not going to do that. And then five years later, we're like, all right, I'm going to do that. That looks yeah. pretty good. <laughs> right. You know what? I'll just, I'll do that. I need, I need a new car. I need a new car. But I'm a different, but it's me that's doing it. So I'm doing yeah. it on my own terms. I'm wearing a leather jacket. Because they said so. <laughs> I still got my fucking yeah. earring. Like, I'm never taking my earring out. <laughs> Fry that thing out when I'm dead. Right. Whenever you think that you're capitulating too much, you remember that you got your earring. And it's a hoop. It's a Mr. Clean hoop earring. It's not. Oh, one is it really? It's not one of those diamond studs. Like, I got me a hoop. Yeah. Hell yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You do. Right. Yeah. Cool. I'm going out like a pirate. Right. <laughs> so, what in college were you doing, right? Like, were you, did you lean into music in college or were you just like, like high yeah. school, like, this is great and let's see what happens? No, no, I loved it. And I was in, you know, I was in bands. Um, one of my closest friends then and now, uh, we, you know, we, we were writing partners together and we had bands all through college and we did some recording. So we were pretty serious about it. Like we, you know, we had a lot of fun. We were, you know, we thought we were awesome. And um, it's a recurring. And some days we were. <laughs> it's a recurring theme. Ah, we're great. Right. We're awesome. Some, some days we were. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I leaned into it, but I, I was, um, you know, I always had that backup plan. So I came out of, I actually went to law school after, after I didn't even take any time off. I went right from college into, went to law school. And, uh, cause How very I, punk rock of you. I guess I must've known that I was not all that punk rock. <laughs> <laughs> I guess somewhere deep inside of me, you know, like was saying, yeah, you know, you're not awesome. You're, yeah. you're not awesome at that. So do something else just in case. Yeah. And, um, as every yep. great success story is always like, I immediately went to plan B. <laughs> <laughs> right. At the first sign of trouble, yeah. I yeah. bailed. I'm out. I'm out. Right. So, so where did you go to law school at? University of Maryland. Okay. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so I met my wife and we were like literally across the street from, um, uh, we lived like right down from Camden Yards. It was a, it was a good time. It was That's a good right. time. We would see the guys filming, uh, filming Homicide. We would see, we would see like G and Bayless and uh, Richard Belzer. We saw, we saw those guys filming out. It was, we had a great time. It was yeah. fun. It's, you know, it's, I've probably, on this show, I was just, I was telling some, uh, a, a, a young kid the other day, like, the, I think the two, perf the two backgrounds other than MFAs that I have on this show are um, philosophy or religious studies or lawyers. And I was telling him, I was like, it's because all of those are about language and ideas and being able to parse them out and write them in clear ways. And yeah. so like, weirdly, sure. I think the law is, I mean, and you know, like when I was in college, which was the same time you were, they were saying, if you want to go to law school, get an English degree, because you're going to need right. to be able to use this language. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's really true. It's yeah. really, that's what they would guide. It wasn't, there was, you know, like you could do this thing called pre-law, but it, you know, what they were really telling you to do was be an English major. And then, you know, have some facility with English and yeah. know how to use it and know how to use it to your benefit and to manipulate it. Yeah. As it <laughs> turns out, when you're arguing something, and it, it is helpful to know how English works. To know English, right. And all the rhetorical ploys that you have. Yeah. 
disposal. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, so like it, like it is to me and it, it, it actually makes sense that you go from like writing music. It like that actually weirdly seems like a, a, a rather straightforward progression from like, Hey, we're writing music and we're doing all this stuff to like, I'm going to go to law because that's a job. Right. But right. also you're still using the language. Yeah, absolutely. I, I never fell down in my element in, in that regard. Yeah. In, in terms of the law with, yeah. uh, with the writing and with being able to like communicate. That was yeah. one was something that was, yeah, it, you're absolutely right. Those things were very much in sync. So when uh, you finish law school and you, I'm assuming you're dating your wife and you're out there in Maryland, like what comes next? Cause there's a few, there's like, cause this isn't your first book that you've written. So you have some stuff right. going on. So what we did, so um, we moved up to Philly. We, 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 both got jobs in, uh, my wife was working in, um, in DC. We weren't married yet, but she was working in DC. I was working in suburban Baltimore. Um, and I think we just wanted to change. And also I was in that, I was in that rock and roll band. So, which was playing a lot up here in Philly. Yeah. It's embarrassing, to see now, but still, um, look, it, if you're, if you're doing shit in your twenties, that isn't embarrassing when you're in your fifties, you fucking wasted your twenties. You wasted your time because that's yeah. exactly how I feel. I'm just going to own it now that I'm, now that I'm in my fifties. Yeah. Don't tell your kids uh, that, but yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Every minute, every yeah. minute counts. Know what you want to do in college. Right. It's how success <laughs> right. happens. Exactly. Yeah. Don't you dare go to 10th grade without knowing what you want to do. Yeah. With your Immediately. Life. You need a life coach. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So we moved up to Philly and, um, and I, I think, and I was still, I was still like writing, so, you know, sort of a casual, um, you know, doing music on the side. It wasn't until our first kid came along that I, that I started writing and, um, really? so my, yeah, yeah. My first, and it, the, the seeds were planted back in college when I was an undergrad, I took um, a writing fiction seminar with a great workshop with a terrific novelist named David Small who's written some of my favorite books. And, um, and it was, it was just, you know, I didn't come out of there. I didn't come out of that, that workshop thinking I'm going to be a writer, but it was one of those things where I thought this has demystified the process. So if I ever wanted to write a novel, I at least know the, I don't know whether I can do it, yeah. but I would know like the steps that I would need to take and I would know the amount of effort that it, that it requires. <laughs> um, so it really wasn't until our first daughter came along that we, that it was like, yeah, I kind of don't want to be playing in a band that, you know, like that has a show at 11 o'clock at night on Tuesday <laughs> in front of three people, yeah. um, <laughs> two of whom are like our, our wives. Right. So like I don't really, wanna, unless it's your job, who wants to be up at eleven o'clock playing a show? Yeah, yeah, it's just not me. It's yeah. Certainly not me. That sounds um, terrible. I wasn't getting paid enough because I was getting paid nothing. Yeah. So I was. So it was kind of, and I really thought I would miss it, but I. Um, you slept instead. <laughs> instead, I slept, and yeah. I need. <laughs> yeah. You're like this so is I great. Thought, right. Right. So I thought, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna take. I, but I still needed a creative out. Outlet. Yeah. So I started writing. And, um, and then my, you know, my first book, thank you. Good night was the, was after, um, a lot of blood, sweat and tears, um, was the result of that. It's, you know, it's one of the, one of the themes that sort of pops up here is that everybody who's become a novelist or a, a, an author has said basically like, I didn't really know how to do it. Like there was not a training ground for, even if you get an MFA, it's just like, I don't know right. how this industry works. I don't know how to get an agent. Like, I don't know how to write the book. And, 
But everybody says like the way to learn how to write your first novel is to write it. Yeah. And then it doesn't actually help you with your second one. Cause you got to write that one too. And you're going to, yeah. you may have to rewrite it less, but maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, that, and it's the same amount of work. Um, and maybe a little bit less anxiety because when you finish your first one, what you come away with is the knowledge that you can finish a book. Yeah. Which um, is at least in my case, it's an undertaking, you know, like to actually finish a book that has like this, I've got something now that has a beginning, a middle and an end. Yeah. I never thought I would get. Um, You have a flashlight. I feel like you got a flashlight. You're like, look, I got to go into a force, but or force, but I got, I know the way through. Like that's right. Follow me. Exactly. We'll get there. Right. As, as, um, as one of my friends describes it, you got through the great big swampy middle, you know, like, you know how it be, and you know where you want to get like, but, but I'm on page nine. How do I page 300? The end. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) What do I do for the next 260 pages? It's um, yeah. I think one of the things you learn as a writer is those two things, right? Is that like, Writing is actually editing. First drafts are pretty easy because they're terrible. So you're just like, you're writing it and you're like, brilliant. And then you read it and you're like, not so brilliant. Right, sucks. And then it's that slog between like the euphoria of the beginning and the euphoria Mm. of the end that is like Mm. nine seconds. And it's like, well, if you're a writer, that means you have to be like, I like swamps. Right, right. You got to get comfortable with, and you also, you got to get comfortable. This is, uh, you know, I, I learned so much from that, that um that writing fiction some yeah. I took with uh David Small but one of the things that he taught us was that um you know there <laughs> you really got to plow through the highs and the lows yeah like, there's a lot of it's you have this relationship with this project <laughs> and you some days you love it which makes you love yourself and you just come back to that I'm just I'm just awesome yeah and then there are days where you're like I, I I'm worthless. This is worthless. Everything, everything's worthless. And you just like, and it sounds melodramatic and it sounds pretentious, but if you're really, if you're really committing to the work and you're really into it and, and, and you care about it, you do go through those highs and lows. Yeah. Like hourly. It's not like, okay, by two 30, I'll be okay. It's like, you know, in a couple of weeks, maybe I'll come out of this, but, um, yeah, it's it's really true. It's like the first that first draft is you're telling the story yourself, and then all the work is in the revising because yeah. you back and you read it and you're like, "What idiot wrote this? Yeah. This is first of all, it doesn't make any sense. But even if it did, it's bad." Yeah, and, you know. So, it's, yeah. But finishing one is is um is a landmark because then you realize that you can at least finish it. It's whenever I work with because I you know I run a, a university press now, and so I will work with people that are like you know, they've written academic or whatever, but they've never really written a book or they've never written like a long essay. And I tell them like, look, just write the first draft and just know everything you summarize is what you're going to be writing. You're going to (laughs) skip over a bunch of stuff like yada, yada, yada. And I'm like, that's the story. Like whatever bullshit you're saying, this is like the first day in therapy where you're like, I know what's wrong with me. And you get done. The therapist is like, well, you've already dealt with all that stuff. Everything you didn't fucking say is what the story is. Exactly. Let's get back to all that other stuff. Yeah. When you're like, I mean, don't talk about my mother. Like, and you're like, okay, that's that note they're taking. Okay. And here's where you summarized. Right. So let's (laughs) dig into that for a little bit. Right. Like that's, I feel like that's what that sort of rewriting process is, is like looking for the shit you didn't want to say, 
because that's typically at least a first place to begin unpacking. Like, why didn't I say that? Like what was there that wasn't, that I didn't want to get to. Exactly. Exactly. What was I avoiding? What did I have the effort for? What, what at the time did I just not feel like diving into for whatever reason, just wasn't, didn't mentally feel like it. I was tired. So I found, you know, like some expedient way to bypass some stuff and some device that got me around this. And yeah, yeah, no, you can't, you can't run and hide from it. Like you gotta, you gotta go back and and make it better. And if you, you know, if you're a writer, like typically I assume that that means you're relatively witty because you're working with words. So we're really good at like summarizing in a witty way where it's like, "Ah, I love that line. And you're like, that line's probably not staying. Yeah, I love that line, but it's it's a stand-in for some stuff that I could have gone deeper on. Yeah, that I really needed to do. Yeah, I'm like right. son of a bitch. <laughs> right. I'm not. I'm I'm not being honest. I'm yeah. just being. Uh, I'm just being witty. And I think I, you know, at least for nonfiction, for me, like everybody's different, but like that's all that has always been my issue. And like that, whenever I'm ed- editing, folks, I'm always looking for like, what are you not saying? Like that's sort of where right. stories get. That's where they get interesting because everything, you know, like that's where it becomes it becomes specific to you and not just a general story. That thing yeah. you don't want to talk about is your thing. That's right. That's right. And and yeah, and you have to sort of be bold about about confronting it and yeah. like shining a light on it and not caring. And even though you've got these, you know, even though you've got these characters that you're calling names that aren't you, you got it, you know, in the back of your mind, they're thinking. They're thinking this is you. your readers thinking this is you. Yeah. So you know, is this a character or is this you? And yeah. so there's a lot of there's a lot of that kind of psychology that that's sort of you know gurgling around in the gumbo that makes you uncomfortable as you go through all of this. Yeah, so. and I mean that's I always tell like people like character like if you're a fiction writer, ninety nine point nine percent of the time they're not writing about their bullshit. Like it's not you. But every book begins with a question that an author has and that whatever you're reading is an exploration of a question or an idea that the author has decided to spend time with. Even if it's a farce, even if it's a satire, like it is still a thing that they care enough about. That's right. To want to delve into it. And so don't look at the characters, look at the things that are happening. And that's that's like, that's when you're in their head about, oh, what's the thing? And then sometimes it's just like, oh yeah, but this is also funny. So fuck you, this. (laughs) you know like like that just happened like that's really astute because you have to you know if you decide on a topic or a setting or you know like when you commit to a book you are committing to a couple of years living with these characters and you know when my first draft of of my new book darling at the campsite you know i the the main character rowan darling i i kind of liked him I thought he was in the first draft. I thought he was Uh-oh. snarky, but, he, but I, I liked him. I, I didn't, he wasn't me, yeah. but I liked him and I, I enjoyed spending time with him. And, you know, like my agent read the first draft, my wife read the first draft and their, their comments were both like, you know, there's some, there's some decent stuff in this book, but your main character sucks. Like <laughs> he's not, he's not likable at all. And so I, you know, like I have to, I, I don't want to repel my, my readers. I don't want to push them away. So, and likability is, um, well, it's a different story, but I, yeah. I, I felt like I needed to address that. Yeah. So, um, so I did, I did. And, but you, but when you, when you live with these characters for as long as it takes to write a novel 
and you live in a setting and you live in a, it's, it's actually funny. Like Darling at the Campsite started out as I had this idea. It wasn't a murder mystery, but there was a murder in it. And somebody, there was somebody that, that, that one of these, it's a group of people and one of their childhood friends died and their whole childhood was sort of like, that was a pivotal moment. And I started writing that book. And after a while, I, I was like, I can't, I can't do this every day because this is dark. <laughs> and, and it sounds like method acting, but it's yeah. actually true. Like if you want to write truthfully, you have to get in, you know, like you're yeah. climbing back in. Every time you turn on that computer to write, you're climbing back into that world. And I didn't like that world. So I was like, one day I was just like, why am I doing this to myself? Like, I don't, I, this is a lot of time to spend in a world that just doesn't, it, it's, it's off-putting to me. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, so I was like, you know what? I'm getting rid of all these people. There's no murder, there's, there's no murder, and I just changed the story. So, yeah, I mean, it's you you live with it for a long time, so you have to kind of you have to you have to want to have to want to dive back in every day. Yeah, I mean, I, I tell young writers or any writer that I'm working with or that comes and asks for advice, I'm like, you go live life. Like I did not like teaching. I taught journalists, but like I didn't like. I was like, I would tell students all the time, young writers all the time, like. I can't teach you how to be a writer in this classroom. Like you have to go out and live and experience right. things and figure out your voice and figure out and meet people and talk to everybody and make mistakes in your life and fuck up and like succeed yeah. and then use all that as a well of empathy. Right. Anytime you're writing, like, because nobody wants to see a black hat and a white hat because that's just not the world. And right. so once you figure out your voice, once you figure out how to tap in and understand large groups of people and that you un understand the difference between explaining without excusing, like it's, you can paint somebody and say, this is who they are, not, hey, let's feel bad for them, but like, this is why they are the way they are. Then yeah. you can write and like, I can't, then I can help you, right? Like then right. I can come in and help and other people can help with like, the guy you had who gave the seminar about structure and stuff like you need people to help you with that as well. But like, I don't do that. That's, I come from an oral culture. Like I, I didn't learn to tell stories that way. Right. So right. I need you to have a certain tool set in the same way that you needed to develop the tool set after you knew the structures. Exactly. Exactly. Like you, you have to go out, you have to have a well of experience to draw upon and you have to interact with enough people. And that's that kind of, you know, it's an interesting question. Like, has it is it easier to write or harder to write in a pandemic? In a pandemic, like you're home a lot, so you're in front of your computer a lot, so you've got a lot more time, yeah. arguably, to write. But you're missing out on, you know, there was like a year where the human interaction was really limited. You were yeah. interacting with the people that were in your house. Yeah. And um, you know, so and even if you like, you're out there as you say, like you're collecting stories, you're living, you're living yeah. a life. You're, like you're living stories and you're collecting stories. They're, they're not necessarily the stories you're going to tell, but they work their way into the stories that you do tell. Those yeah. interact little things, bits and pieces, they just, they find their way and there's no substitute for that. Yeah. Like you, you know, like it would be great to be J.D. Salinger and have the talent to just sort of like- Would it though? <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> but I have to say that. Yeah. <laughs> You mean the I recluse part, it. not the other part. Right, right. Yeah. Like to live up, you know, in what was it, Vermont, New Hampshire, wherever he lived yeah. up, you know, at the end of a driveway somewhere and not have any human interaction. 
Well, except for the little girl he was grooming. But other than that. Right. Yeah. And, and some days living off the grid sounds nice. Yeah. But, but, you know, but it's, uh, you know, it's not, it's, it, it, I, to me, it doesn't seem conducive to like writing robust, vivid, alive stories. I mean, I, you know, it's, I, this, I get, I, I know I anger my comic friends all the time, but like anytime a comedian has a kid, I don't watch that next special. Cause I'm like, oh, they're gonna be like, you ever have a kid that poops? And I'm like, no, I don't. Like, I don't. Like, I don't care about any of that. You know what I mean? Like, right. it's it it changes, and it's that pandemic thing. It's like, well, you got a kid. Thank you for staying home with your kid and that being your life. But like, I don't want to hear that story. Like, exactly. You know, it's <laughs> and so I think the pandemic has been a little bit like that for for some writers. It's like, well, shit. I, like, for someone like me, whose entire thing is meeting people and like that stuff like it's been a hard 18 months to even figure out like what the fuck do you even say like pandemic suck like yep right. period the end yeah. right right and everybody's lived it the same way everybody's cooped up everybody's you know like we've all had the same experience but more than anything we've all been deprived of experience yeah and what's that's what's really hurt us and you know it's for guys like us in our like the the I don't want to call you fifty because you're not but forty nine yeah but yeah, I'm I'm cruising well, towards fifty yeah in our demographic when you yeah. turn When's your birthday? April. It just happened. You just turned 49? Yeah. Oh, you're a kid. You don't I have a kid. Know. I'm a kid. I got like you, 10 months. You don't even know what we're talking about. Okay. <laughs> but for people of our approximate age, yeah. um, you know, like we, there's, we, we were kind of fine. Like we started out, we're, we're going to come out of this. Okay. Yes. It's, you know, the, the kids really, it, it can, you can see how it really seeps in and the kids and the older set. Yeah. Like, like that's, it's hard to take somebody who's like, you know, um, I'm the youngest one in my family. They're all, Oh yeah. My sister's 54, but everybody else is above 70. Like I'm the last one. So like, I know exactly what you're talking about. Like, yeah. Like you see, like it's been yeah, hard. It's, it's hard. It's hard. And then you, you know, like it's just, it's not, it's really hard on them to be, you know, cloistered away from society. It's just, it, that kind of isolation has a different impact on you depending on on a variety of factors but one of those factors is your age yeah and, um and i think you know kids like i have a i have a, a ninth grade some of my younger daughter's just finishing her ninth grade her, her her uh yeah ninth grade and she um you know like she up until past couple of weeks she'd never been to her she started a new high school she'd never been there <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> so like, that's weird you know they're all remote and it's just you just wonder what the long-term effects of all of this yeah are to be and the answer is some <laughs> yeah but certainly some it, the only art that i'm interested in seeing out of the pandemic is going to be that generation of kids that are coming up who have to deal with the you know the trauma of yeah of that because You're right i'm You're an extrovert right. and so i need social interaction but i'm also an adult and i have a bit like i have abilities yeah. to deal with that and i have a therapist and tool sets and things yeah. But, you know, like, and I've told people, like, I don't want to see, like, love and fucking in the time of a pandemic. Like, I don't want to see those novels from 35-year-olds who are like, let me tell, like, and I'm sure it's great, it's fine, and again, I don't, like, that's just not a thing I want to see. But I think a lot of these young kids, as they come of age and start developing this art, like, this period is going to be one of those, like, it's going to be their grunge rock. Absolutely. Right? It's going to be pivotal for them. It's going to be defining for them. I, yeah. I, I think you're right. Um, and so in that way, I will see that comedian talking about their kids. Right. But you're, <laughs> you're totally right. Like there's, 
it's like, you know, when a, when a musician, you know, gets a divorce, you know, a year later, there's going to be the breakup album. Yeah. When a comedian, comedian has a kid, the next special. Yeah. <laughs> the special is about the yeah. kid. Yeah, it's going to be like, I'm going to hear kid poop jokes. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, they're great. And I understand. I understand. But like, how many of these can I hear? Like, there's only right. so many ways that I, I saw that other comedian do it. Then I saw that other comedian yeah. do it. I don't need another one. I got godchildren. I've had children poop on me. Like, I don't, right. I don't, that's not, it's the, the old joke that I had is that the reason athletes don't get to bring this all back around, the, the reason athletes don't get therapy is because I, to be a high level athlete, how many, I, how many people do you know? and I know some high-level athletes who are driven by this rage and anger from trauma that they channel into this thing. Right, they don't want to lose it. Yeah, Rob Dibble was the meanest pitcher on the planet, out of control, threw baseballs into the stadium, like, but he was unhittable, went to got therapy, the next year he was out of the league. Because, like, <laughs> and like for the betterment of humanity and for the betterment of Rob Dibble at the time but also i was like when he did it i'm like well that fucker's gonna be out of here soon like because all of the things that made him get up at 4 30 in the morning to like outwork the next guy he's like oh i'm happy and content and i'm like right. way better like, I'd be, do that yeah. your job is not to be content your yeah. job is to be is to be the opposite of content except for that as a human i'm like i now i'm like i would rather you go will be other relief pitchers like right. that's, right. that's damage true. is bad that's um, true so, it, you know, I think that it will be interesting <laughs> to see these kids because particularly these Gen Z kids are, I've told people, like, I think they're the best of us because they have the cynicism of Gen X, but the optimism of millennials and this empathy that has sort of come out of them where like they both want to be competitive, but also want to make sure everybody's seen and taken care of. Yeah. They yeah. don't mind being coached, but like, don't yell at them in a way that feels demeaning. You can yell at them, but you can't right. be like my coaches that were like, you fucking piece of shit. Like, right. why'd you miss that? You're like, I'm nine. I don't know. I don't know why right. I missed it. Like the ball just, was hard and I didn't want to get hit. I didn't, I didn't want to miss it. <laughs> yeah. But like I did. And so like, I, like I truly am excited to see what these kids do because I feel like it is going to be that sort of weird transformational thing. It's going to be punk rock. It's going to be grunge yeah. rock. It's going to be something that we did not see coming no, you're right, because they're like so a great damn. admixture of all of that, like yeah. empty but but work ethic, and you know, like it's they're 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 the first ones who have all of that together with the world ending, right? Like climate Maybe change, like ones. everything. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's really I mean, unique. Not that I'm not excited for our books, but like I'm excited for their books. Too. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we began with baseball and ended with books not yet written, and that right. is that is literally. That's our charge of this show. Yeah. This show yeah. is like the least. So, uh, darling, we didn't even get to a beginner's guide to free fall, but like, um, uh, darling's, uh, darling at the campsite is out now. It's out, uh, next week, six next week. Is that a Tuesday? I think it's a Tuesday. Are you, are there going to be things like out in the world now that like things are opening up? Yeah. And there, so all of the launch events are virtual. They're like this. Yeah. Like, Yes, and so um, yeah, I've got uh, got a couple of those lined up um, for next week and the week after, and um, yeah, I've written some pieces that are that are going to be out there and hopefully get some reviews. And so it's it goes out in the world on Tuesday. That's I'm very excited. exciting. Are you going to have really, a party I, or something? Like, are you going to do something like with in real like with people? Yeah, I'll probably there's a there's a park down the street from me down the block, and I'll probably 
meet some friends there and you know everybody will show up with a six pack and it'll it'll be like that yeah <laughs> you get, get drunk in the park so you're gonna be like a homeless person right right <laughs> and that will be one of the experiences i will need to tap into for my next right. stop like, but you know what, what? i need like, to access that and what honestly like after the pandemic it's like do i even want to do something with 100 people anymore like i feel like <laughs> just having a beer in the woods with some friends feels really about as oh, much as yeah. i'd like to do yeah man well that's a whole different conversation of like how much how much uh, how much of a return to normal do we want yeah I don't want people dying anymore. I'm glad we got a vaccine out there and people are people aren't dying. That's that's number one. And, number and then baseball's back. Talk about how much we really want to return to society. Yeah. I mean, I was on a I was interviewed in a on a station in Atlanta the other day, and uh they asked me about that. And I was like, you know, that's the old George Carlin thing. Like, I like people, I trust people. I don't trust them when there's more than three of them. So right. like there's a whole lot of people that are like, we're gonna change. And I'm like, I don't know. There's a lot of white people out there that are like, we don't think there should be change. Right. Why would we? Yeah. So like, you know, the Texas legislature, for instance, like there's just a lot of stuff that I'm like, you know, I, I remember nine 11, I was a reporter on nine 11. I remember Mm -hmm. being in Berkeley and sitting outside and like crying with my neighbors and like riding the subway home. And like, you just randomly hug people. And it was like, this moment is going to change America forever. And then today, like it, like, it's like, did it? Like, I don't, it did for like a minute. And then, you know, institutional memory kicks in and people are like, well, what do you mean? I'm going to lose some power. Like, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. You got a lot, a little bit's okay. Right. It's, that's the, that's, that's exactly right. It's like, okay. Well, whenever we talk about that kind of change, that kind of change entails somebody giving something up. Yeah. always the hard part yeah and and it's typically at least in america it is a very specific group of people who have you know we got a long history of not doing so well with that they like to hang on to things yes (laughs) yeah yeah and so it's like well you know they like more things not less not fewer things and you know we'll end with this but like it like as a gen xer I've all, you know, one of the things, and because I've done a lot of writing around this stuff, is like we never wanted to change the world. We wanted to change the neighborhood. And like anything beyond the neighborhood yeah. felt like an arrogant folly. And not that you shouldn't strive to do that because history makers change the world. But like right. that just is not my makeup. If I can get my yard and my neighbor's yard looking good and I can make the life around me pretty good, like, and so, you know, as we come back out of this, and everybody has been so isolated with just your neighbors, right? Like you're just around those people. I yeah. hope that's what kicks in because that to me, I'm like, well, if we can maintain that level of civility with the people that we live with and the and not civility, like the conversations that need to happen, right? The, right. The, 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 the truths that you can tell to your neighbors and your friends because you have a relationship. If we can do that, yeah, maybe the world changes, right? Like maybe it changes. That's right. That's right. Like, right. It's got it's got to start there. Yeah. yeah. That that park I was telling you about where I, you know, take yeah. a 62 for um through the life of the pandemic, all through the winter, all whether whether it's good weather, bad weather, this is on Wednesday nights has been this this group of guys that has met out there um every Wednesday evening. Sometimes it's for a couple hours, sometimes you know, we stop by for, you know, 20 minutes, drink a beer. It's been crucial. It's that kind of connectivity and just like, you know, that's the community and that, you know, don't want to give that up once, yeah. uh, 
Well, yeah. you hope when all this is over and we all sort of scatter to the four winds and, and go back to our jobs and go back to the things that, we, you know, that, that, that took us away from home, that that stuff remains yeah. and persists. I mean, King of the Hill is, you know, is a funny cartoon, but also it's true. Like, dude standing around drinking beer. Like, it, I mean, honestly, I've told folks, like, the, the conversations that need to happen are that. Like, it needs to be a bunch of dudes that are standing around. Like, you guys got to cut that shit out. Like, we got to, exactly. like, it can't be other people having those conversations. It literally has to be us. Because That's right. That's we right. are the fucking... That's right. The king the of that, that shitty hill. No, you're, yes, that's right. And because otherwise it doesn't move. No. Stuff doesn't move. No. And I know like when I, you know, I'm from a small town. So when I go back, like, you know, if you just looked at my Facebook feed, I mean, there's all kind of bullshit that goes. I don't participate in it. But like when I go home, I'm like, I've known every goddamn one of you people for 40 years. Like, shut the fuck up. Like, it's a conversation that you can have in person that you can't have on, like, that you can have standing around. And I'm like, nobody can say anything to me because I'm like, come on. Like, our family yeah. has been here for generations. Shut up. Shut That's up. That's right. Shut you up. can't pull the wool over my eyes. Yeah. yeah. I know you. I yeah. know you. you Post that on Facebook all you want. You lived in my house. Shut up. That's right. Exactly. You know, like, right. I did this myself. I'm like, except when my mom made you dinner for a year. <laughs> what you know, like, it's like walden like i'm living by myself your mom's right. doing your laundry yeah you, you slept over my house every weekend really yeah. Yeah. yeah they were divorced i'm like all my friends were divorced literally they grew up in my house i'm like come on your bootstraps were my mom and dad buying food yeah, exactly. You were that, that was my pantry you had your hand in yeah. from ages 11 to 19. Yeah. Like, come on, man. You're killing It's like, me. I wouldn't change it for anything, but that's well, that's the reality. Yeah, but careful with your bootstraps bullshit. Exactly. <laughs> right, right. I know you. Yeah. I go way back. I know you. Yeah, well, I'm glad you got that. I'm glad you, I'm glad you got that group of guys that you're doing that with, because that, I think, is probably the most important thing. And when they talk about us doing the work, like, that's it's not all the work, but that's some of the work. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I totally Fellowship agree. so that we can talk truths. That's right. That's right. It's, it's critical. It keeps yeah. us all. Well, this has been great, man. This is one of what some of my favorite conversations are the ones that are just all over the goddamn map. And this one, yeah, we didn't have much in the way of structure. It was great. There's nah, no, there's very little structure. I know you tried. I know you tried. <laughs> It's, you know, it's every, it's the same way with my writing. Like, my conversations are exactly the way my writing is. People are like, there were some parts in there, but other parts I was just baffled. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, right. That's a, it's a, a feature, not a bug. Those are the parts you keep. Exactly. <laughs> Total feature. So, uh, Darling at the Campsite is out. People will be able to get this by the time this podcast is out. It will be available. Is it available right. in all of the places? All the places. All the places. We're going to tell people to go to bookshop and not Amazon. Although we're happy if people will leave reviews everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. Available everywhere. Yeah. Spread the word. Well, you have a good rest of your day. I hope we can do this again soon. Maybe I'll get out to Philly and we'll go watch a baseball game. And Let's catch a game around us. Absolutely. And if I'm in Pittsburgh, man, we're definitely, because I feel like I hang out with you and suddenly I'm talking to like, you know, Andrew McCutcheon or something like I, I feel like, you know, like that could happen. I, when I will just, we will, I will tell you this. When I, I was down there in, in, at the Birmingham game, I'm an Olympic lifter. And so I was lifting at this gym and it turned out that the, the guy who owns the gym had been the strength coach for the Orioles. And who was? do you remember his name? Uh, his name was Terry. So I have to look it up. Terry something. The name of the gym is chalk. So I'm going to the game and it was the Tennessee team was in town 
and I can't remember, but he was like, whoever the athletic trainer is for the Barons, he used to work for in Baltimore. He's like, go. so I told my girlfriend, I'm like, there's a chance I'm going to run down to the dugout. And she's like, don't you dare. Because <laughs> I already talked to all the ushers when I came in, because I just talked to everybody in the park. And she's like, don't be that old man. And I'm like, is Scott Johnson down there? Terry from Chalk told me to tell him hi. <laughs> all right, brother, you have a good day. And uh, I hope you we get too, to watch It was great game. talking to you. Yeah, you it too. It was great talking to you, man. I really appreciate you having me on. Well, there you have it, everybody. That was Andy Abramowitz. His book, Darling at the Campsite, is out right now. Make sure you go pick that up, read it, leave reviews, Amazon, Goodreads, anywhere else. Before we get out of here, just a couple reminders. If you like what you heard, do us the two favors I talked about at the top of the program. Leave us a review and tell your friends about us. While you're at it, don't forget to check out all of the other programs on the Solid Listen Podcast Network including our flagship Mother May I Sleep With podcast with host and our Solid Listen podcast queen, Molly McLear. Don't forget, we got video podcasts coming out on the Solid Listen Network YouTube channel. I put those out Mondays and Fridays-ish. We have a bunch in the can, so they're going to be coming out. You can also catch the audio version right here on this podcast channel. And the jam is out on Wednesdays, so make sure you get yourself subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts. You don't want to miss anything that we're doing. And remember, you can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The Writer's Jam. Till the next time, I will see you around the internet. Once upon a time, there was a girl who dreamed of flying through the stars, who dared to resist injustice, who lived to a beat and a rhythm that was all her own. Her name was Chloe Frida, Oprah, Celia Cruz, Josephine, Greta, Ruth, Alice. One day, she wondered, could today be the beginning of something new? This was her one opportunity to do something, something big. So that's exactly what she did. Along the way, she discovered that she wasn't alone. Her body felt strong, her mind sharp. She was prepared to work as hard as it took. Her words were making a real change, and she felt powerful. I'm Gail King. I'm Andrea Day. I'm Diane Gibbons. I'm Lindsay Vaughn. I'm Jamila Jamal. I'm Anita Hill. I'm Brenda Chapman. I'm Alana Glazer. And this is Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or find out more at rebelgirls.com slash audio.